Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we've got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. In August of 2000, 23-year-old Welsh backpacker Kirsty Jones was just two months into the year-long trip of a lifetime backpacking through Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. After having dinner with new friends, Kirsty did some shopping at a local bazaar, then made the short walk back to the guest house she was staying at in Chiang Mai in the country of Thailand. The next afternoon, Kirsty was found dead inside of her room, strangled and sexually assaulted. Despite DNA being found at the scene, Thai police allowed the room to be contaminated over and over, sinking the investigation before it even started. 23 years later, Kirstie's case is still in need of justice. This is her story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead Kirsty Sarah Jones was born October 25, 1976, to parents Glenn and Sue Jones. She was from a small farming village in Wales, where her parents ran a 400-acre beef and sheep farm. Her mother, Sue, described Kirsty to the BBC as a fun-loving, happy, exuberant girl. Kirsty was the girl who kept everyone on track, always organized. She was the one who'd plan outings or events, and they were always successful when Kirsty was planning. Sue often also talks about how caring her daughter was, that she was smart and very loved by her friends and family. After Kirsty's death, Sue told BBC how much she missed her, saying, I miss her every day. I miss her noise, her laugh. I miss her presence. She was a what-you-see-is-what-you-get sort of person. Not much has been published about Kirsty's personal life, but it was clear that she was bold, adventurous, and intent on living her life to the fullest. Sue later told Mirror that Kirsty knew from a young age that she wanted to travel and had Australia in the forefront of her mind. Quote, at just 14, back in the early 90s, before gap years became all the rage, Kirsty had already decided that she was going to take a year out to tour Australia before going to university. While in high school, though, Sue said that Kirstie didn't let her inability to travel the world quite yet ruin her fun. She satisfied her wanderlust with summer music festivals, Glastonbury, the Big Chill, and the Notting Hill Carnival. She had a pierced nose and wore big, baggy sweaters. She looked every inch the hippie chick she wanted to be. At 20 years old, Kirstie finally left the UK to visit Australia, returning home through Thailand. Though Kirstie's parents worried about her traveling so far when she came home, they saw that Kirstie had become an even better version of herself. Her mother said, Kirstie left here a child and came home an adult. I really think it was the best preparation for university life that she could have had. 
When she returned home from her trip, Kirsty began attending classes at Liverpool University, ultimately earning a degree in English and Media Studies in 1999. Not long after, in 2000, Kirsty decided to set off on the trip of a lifetime, traveling around the world for an entire year. She planned to go through Asia, then to Australia and New Zealand, then finishing her trip in South America. She was starting off the journey on her own, but planned to meet up with one of her good friends at some point on the trip. However, with Kirstie's magnetic personality, there was no doubt she'd make friends with other travelers along the way. Kirstie was 23 years old when she departed Wales in June of 2000, visiting both Singapore and Malaysia before heading to Chiang Mai, Thailand in August. Sue later told the BBC that her young daughter at this time had the world at her feet. While most parents would have been worried about their daughter traveling so far alone, Kirstie's parents knew that she was a smart traveler, especially after she'd traveled to Australia a few years prior. ITVX reported that Sue and Glenn said that they felt no reason to worry a second time around, as Kirstie was older, wiser, and more experienced. Also, unlike during her first trip, they now had access to email to keep in touch. Chiang Mai, which is about 435 miles north of Bangkok, was often traveled and well-known to backpackers. The town has a low cost of living and affordable temporary lodging, so it's an attractive location for people like Kirsty who are trying to stretch their money. On August 4th, 2000, Kirsty checked into the Ari Guest House and Massage School. The guest house was nothing fancy, and the rooms were just big enough for the bed. But that was about it. However, at just 60 Thai baht per night, which is equivalent to $1.73 USD, it was good enough for Kirsty. Unfortunately, Ari was known for more than just its affordability. It was a haven for drugs. Just a few months before Kirsty arrived, the Royal Thai Police had shut down Ari for six months after a backpacker died from a heroin overdose. Kirsty couldn't wait to explore the area. She went on jungle hikes, backpacking through the mountains, and made friends with other travelers. Two of her new friends were British backpackers named Nathan and Sarah, both 27 years old, so just a little bit older than Kirsty herself. On August 9th, the three went to dinner at a nearby Thai restaurant. After dinner, Nathan left the girls so he could make a phone call to his girlfriend. With Nathan gone, Sarah and Kirsty continued their night meandering around the Chiang Mai Night Bazaar, where there were vendors selling food, crafts, and other goods. Sarah later said that Nathan left them around 10 p.m., and none of them had been drinking any alcohol or anything like that that night. She also recalled that she last saw Kirsty wearing a long, flowery skirt with a pink shirt. Sarah decided to head back to her room around 11 p.m., but said that Kirsty wanted to continue shopping and buying presents. Sarah then left Kirsty at the bazaar and made the 25-minute walk back to Ari. Sarah had no idea, but when she left Kirsty that night, it'd be the last time she'd ever see her alive again. Everything that happened afterwards would be dissected over and over by law enforcement, reporters, and Kirsty's family for years to come. Thai police were called to the Ari guest house in the late afternoon of August 10th. A worker for the establishment reported that she'd found a dead body in one of the guest rooms. The body was that of 23-year-old Kirsty Jones. She'd been sexually assaulted and murdered in the room that she was staying in. Kirsty was found partially clothed and her blue sarong was pulled tightly around her neck. 
young journalist and Thai-British national Pim was quick to arrive to the scene. She noted that in Thailand, the first to arrive at a murder scene, or any other crime for that matter, were reporters. Most reporters listened to police radios on police scanners. Initially unknown to police, the crime scene had been tainted before the call to them was even placed. But when the reporters arrived at Kirstie's room at the re guest house, they ruined any chance of maintaining a secure crime scene. Pim wrote the following about what she saw that evening, grossly mishandling evidence and the utter lack of respect that they had for the situation and the victim. Quote, along with the rescue service, the local press arrived ahead of the police and immediately invaded the scene of the crime. Kersey's room was on the ground floor, a dark little room filled with one bed and nothing much else. As more and more reporters arrived, her room had filled up with the curious. I reckon from film footages that 20 people had entered Kersey's room before any fingerprinting or evidence collecting was done. The evening news that night showed the rescue team responding to requests from cameramen to turn her head from side to side for a good shot. A cameraman opened Christie's toiletry bag and pulled out condoms ubiquitous travel accessories for any sensible backpacker, to hold up, tut-tutting in judgment. Reporters rifled through her clothes, some even touching the bed sheets, which were later used to extract DNA. The crime scene was contaminated within seconds, and no one, including the police, seemed to have been the slightest bit concerned. End quote. Another reporter said that it's normal practice for lower-ranking police officers to accept bribes from journalists to allow them into crime scenes. Kirstie's parents were on vacation in Spain with friends at the time. Sue recounted to the mirror when she'd first found out what happened. They told us to sit down. Something terrible had happened. We thought at first it was bad news about our parents, but then our friends said it was Kirstie. They'd seen a news report on Sky that a young graduate had been found murdered in a backpacker hostel. Kirstie's name and photo was everywhere. I was devastated. We flew home that night to a whirlwind of police, press, and foreign office officials. Understandably shocked and horrified by the news that their daughter had been found murdered in Thailand, Kirstie's parents were even more disgusted to find that news cameras were allowed into Kirstie's room. Photos of her body were taken and published in Thai news outlets for the whole world to see. Even in death, Kirstie was not given the privacy she deserved. Reporter Rachel Manwaring wrote an article after watching a made-for-TV documentary on Kirstie's murder, Murder in Paradise, Who Killed Kirstie Jones? In the documentary, Manwaring said that police admitted to not sealing off the crime scene because they had found sperm on Kirstie's body and felt they'd be able to track the murderer through DNA evidence. Additionally, Thai police were unable to get a pathologist to the scene to examine Kirstie's body and instead had to have her body transported to a local hospital. In defense of the police, forensic author Salmzak Vongvavak said, It is quite a problem to find a pathologist between 4 and 8 o'clock. I have to go up to my private clinic to check patients between 5 and 8. And at 4.15 p.m., I have to pick up my children from school. It was already clear to Kirstie's family and loved ones that they'd have to fight to make sure their daughter got justice, in spite of the drastic mishandling by the Thai police. Once Kirstie's body was examined, it was determined that she died from asphyxiation. She also had significant internal bruising, which indicated a brutal sexual assault. 
the police commissioner held a conference shortly after Kersey's murder and assured the public that the murderer wasn't either a staff member or a guest at the RE. They even dropped specific names with no concern as to whether they might actually be involved in the murder or just a blameless bystander. Some officers went down the victim-blaming route, using assumed and speculated information about Kirstie's sex life. They even said that Kirstie was probably a willing participant in the sex. Most importantly, the police commissioner also stated that because they had DNA evidence, they'd arrested someone within a week. He was wrong. Though the exact timeline of when everything happened is a bit fuzzy, statements and alibis began to change. The worker, who was a maid, who said that she'd discovered Kirstie's body at 4 p.m., now said that she'd actually found Kirstie at 10.30 a.m., but had been told not to say anything. She said that the owner and manager, named Andy and Sarin, respectively, told her that they had to take care of a few things and that she should wait to call the police. There are also reports that say the owner, Andy, was the first person to discover Kirstie's body. Andy was reported to have told police that around midday on August 10th, he was approached by Seren, the manager, who was known for dealing drugs, including marijuana and methamphetamine. He said that Seren told him there'd been a disturbance in room four the prior night. Knowing that Kirsty was staying in room four, he asked Seren if he had seen her that day. Seren told him that he hadn't and that the room was padlocked from the outside. Andy recalled that he wasn't concerned about something happening to a guest, but more concerned about someone leaving without paying their bill. He reportedly told police that when he finally entered Kersey's room, quote, it was a terrible scene, obvious sexual assault. She was face down on the bed with a top on, but no underclothes or anything from the waist down. Andy then went upstairs and brought Seren down to see Kersey in the room. He said that he was going to call the police, but had decided not to, knowing that his visa was two years out of date. You see, Andy was English. He then tried to get in touch with someone in immigration. In the documentary, Gil reportedly said that, I didn't tell my friends there was someone dead in the guest house. Of course, I didn't want the bad publicity, you know? This change in story led police to their first two suspects, Andy and Seren. Seren pointed the finger at Andy, telling police about the strange behavior he'd witnessed after Kirstie's body was discovered. Furthermore, saying that Andy immediately had the padlock on Kirstie's door washed and then put back on the hinges. The police superintendent agreed that this was very strange. He also noted that there was no sign of forced entry into Kirstie's room. He believed that Kirstie knew her killer, which led her to either opening the door for or inviting them in. The superintendent said to reporters, she may have talked to him fine, and they reached a point where Kirstie knew there was to be sex and resisted it. This could have been when she was harmed. DNA samples were taken from 10 foreigners that were staying at the guest house, including Andy and from four Thai men, including Seren. In addition to Andy and Seren, there were several other males that police had brought in for questioning. One of them was Nathan, the British backpacker who had had dinner with Kirstie and Sarah the night that Kirstie was murdered. As a reminder, Nathan had left the girls after dinner to go call his girlfriend. Turns out he didn't return to the RE until 3 a.m. the day after Kirstie's body was discovered. Another person of interest was 27-year-old Stephen. 
He was a bit of a heavy drug user and reported to police that at 1 a.m. on August 10th, the day that Kirsty was murdered, he heard her scream, leave me alone, leave me alone, get off me, get off me. When the other guests heard the shouting and came to investigate, Stephen and Seren reportedly told them to mind their own business and go back to bed, and the two went down to Kirsty's door. Stephen said that they decided not to go inside, assuming that she'd just been in some type of, quote, lover's quarrel. Stephen then added that it sounded like Kirsty was talking to a Westerner, not a local. He didn't elaborate on why. Seren's room was searched by police, and they found weed and amphetamines and a postcard of a nude woman in bondage. Seren's wife, who had a history of a brain injury, told police that her husband had been in their room with her all night except for when he and Stephen left after hearing the shouting from Kirsty's room. About two months after the murder, Seren told police that he'd seen Kirsty and Andy having sex through the curtains in their room. As seems to be a trend in this case, Seren changed his story, later saying that he only saw Andy leaving Kirsty's room. When Andy was found a few days later at a bar, he was arrested for having an expired visa. Shortly after, he was charged with conspiracy to commit murder pertaining to Kirstie's murder. However, the conspiracy charges were dropped after DNA results returned. The sperm found on Kirstie didn't match the DNA that was collected from any of the suspects, including Andy. The DNA was compared to 80,000 DNA samples from the Central Institute of Forensic Science database, but no matches were found. Three months after his arrest, the conspiracy charges against Andy were dropped. The reporter I mentioned earlier, Pim, met with professor and chairman of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Chiang Mai University, Dr. Bupat, just 10 days after the murder. Dr. Bupat showed Pim the DNA results of the sperm that had been found on Kirsty. Reportedly, the doctor had been pressured by police to get results that would indicate a non-Thai murderer. However, Dr. Bupat said that he was absolutely positive that the person who'd left the sperm on Kirsty was Asian. The DNA was also run through Thailand's criminal database in the Central Institute of Forensic Sciences, again returning no match. This led officials to believe that the killer, or one of the killers, could be someone who had never had a run-in with police. A detective from the UK traveled to Thailand and reviewed the DNA profile himself, he later told Wales Online that they were focusing heavily on the forensic evidence and said that, quote, there is a DNA profile. And as a result of that, the Thai authorities have been conducting screenings of inmates in prisons, individuals in the Chiang Mai community detained for sexual offenses, and some other lines of inquiry linked to information that they have had in terms of people who may know something. Kirsty's body was laid to rest in the town of Brecon in Wales on Friday, August 25th, 2000. The service held at St. Bielo's Church celebrated the life of the bright and bubbly Kirsty with a short saying on the front of the program. You are our night, our day, our shining star. We love you so much, Kirst, wherever you are. You touched so many hearts along the path you trod. Sleep easy now, darling. Go backpacking with God. Kirstie's family made multiple visits to Chiang Mai and the surrounding areas, desperate to find any witnesses or information that might help, or at the very least, feel a sense of closeness to their daughter. She told Wales Online, As a mother, I cannot rest until her killer is brought to justice for all our sakes and for the sake of the hundreds of British tourists who travel through Chiang Mai each year. 
despite having so many suspects and actual DNA evidence, it didn't seem as though police were any closer to finding out who'd murdered Kirsty. Rumors began to spread around Chiang Mai and the nearby area, some of which were perpetuated by law enforcement. One of the police colonels told a reporter about an explanation he'd heard for the sperm being from an Asian man. He said on the night of Kirsty's murder, a foreign man was paying tuk-tuk drivers in exchange for their sperm, and that he must have planted it on Kirsty after killing her. In another story, reporter Pym was tipped off about a trekking guide who had led a group of hikers, including Kirsty, just a few days before her murder. The guide, Abraham, had taken Kirsty's group on a trek to Mai Chem, returning to Chiang Mai two days before her death. Abraham said that he remembered Kirsty, but that she hadn't stood out to him, meaning that he hadn't recalled any direct interactions with her. Abraham also told Pym that earlier he'd been walking down a road when a group of men pulled beside him in a van. They grabbed him, blindfolded him, and pushed him down onto the floor. They forced him to drink water, which he assumed to be drugged. He woke up later in a motel room. For the next several hours, the 34-year-old trekking guide was brutally tortured by a group of men unknown to him. Abraham recalled that they told him, quote, since he was only a hill tribe and not a real Thai citizen, he should confess to the murder of Kirsty Jones and help the country. The men forcibly removed strands of his hair and unsuccessfully tried to force him to masturbate. After hours of abuse, Abraham lost consciousness. He woke up inside a police station with no idea how he had gotten there. It's unknown if these people were rogue officers or entirely unrelated to law enforcement. However, it's a miracle that Abraham lived through the night. Some believe that Abraham's attackers took strands of his pubic hair and attempted to collect sperm from him in order to frame him. Fortunately, it didn't work, and Abraham survived the night. In 2001, Welsh police, who were local to the Jones family, joined the investigation at the insistence of the Jones family. Unfortunately, this didn't move the investigation further along. Sue pleaded with the British government to do more to help, but the Foreign and Commonwealth Office said that there wasn't much they could do, specifically when something happens in Thailand. The Jones family couldn't even get access to the case files in Kirstie's case, despite her case being stalled. Many of the Thai police force continued to push the narrative that someone may have sexually assaulted and murdered Kirstie, then placed another man's sperm inside of her to throw off the investigation. The police superintendent even said that they'd seen the exact scenario before in the area. He explained the theory. Quote, let's pretend for a minute that we raped Kirsty, and within two hours put in a substitute for our own sperm. We tested this theory with people looking for some, and it was available. There are people who will sell sperm, maybe a laborer or someone who needed cash fast, or a prostitute who had saved some from a previous client. End quote. In 2002, Thai police reported that two sex workers told them that Seren paid them to find DNA for him and plant at the scene of Kirsty's murder. These claims, unfortunately, were never substantiated, though. When the Welsh police went to Thailand to assist, they obtained samples of DNA found at Kirsty's crime scene to test at their own lab. They confirmed that the DNA didn't match Abraham, Kirsty's trekking guide, but was extremely similar to his DNA, leading them to believe that the source of the DNA was one of Abraham's family members. Reporter Pym wrote, this sparked a whole new avenue of investigation, and we media scrambled to find members of Abraham's family who could possibly match the DNA. 
With other future dramas, the line of inquiry petered off with no follow-up. Despite DNA testing eventually clearing Sarin, it didn't stop fingers from being pointed at him. Throughout all of the available reporting on Kirstie's case, the information gathered seems to lead back to one person, Sarin. Though Sarin's wife, remember, told police that he'd been home the whole night, only leaving after when he and Stephen had heard the commotion coming from Kirstie's room. But that might not be the truth. When police initially searched Sarin's room after the murder, they had found weed and he was arrested. This wasn't his first arrest for drug possession, by the way. He had already been arrested twice before for possession of heroin. In his absence, his wife took over the day-to-day operations of the Ari. She continued to argue her husband's innocence, even saying that he couldn't have raped Kirsty because he had a back injury and he really couldn't have sex anymore. She also said that she no longer wanted to stay at the Ari because she could hear Kirsty's ghost every night. On August 22nd, less than two weeks after Kirsty's murder, police were again called to Ari. Soren's wife, who had a history of mental illness, was in her room behind a locked door, threatening to hang herself. She told police officers that her husband was innocent and that she missed him. She went on to say that the police wouldn't allow her to visit him or post his bail, and she just couldn't take it anymore. During this event, she got more and more upset as officers tried to reason with her and get her to open the door, but she told them that she didn't want to live anymore. She then turned off the light switch, which shut off all the lights on the top floor. Officers breached the door and found her hanging with a nylon rope around her neck. Fortunately, they were able to cut her down and get her to the hospital. The police colonel continued to state that the case wasn't difficult to solve and that they soon have the murderer in custody. He said that though the DNA results had cleared Seren, Andy, and the other men who had been at the guest house on the night Kersey was murdered, he was confident that one of them had been involved. In fact, the colonel believed that two men had been involved, one Thai man and one foreign man. He said that he was led to this conclusion by the extent of the injuries Kirsty had suffered. However, there was no clear evidence to indicate that there was more than one attacker. On August 30th, despite their multiple insistences that Kirsty's murder would easily be solved, the colonel finally admitted that it may be harder than they originally thought. In 2005, Kirsty's mother, Sue, and Kirsty's brother, Garrett, visited Thailand with officers from the UK. They told the public that they were offering a reward of 10,000 pounds, approximately 12,214 USD, for information leading them to the apprehension of Kersey's killer. But unfortunately, this didn't bring any helpful information or witnesses forward. The Jones family was left at the mercy of the Thai police. The police continued to go around in circles. They seemingly ignored the small amount of evidence that they'd collected, Kirstie's family was devastated, but they were also incredibly frustrated. It was heartbreaking to watch as a foreign country's law enforcement continued to bungle their daughter's murder investigation, especially as they saw it happen again and again to other travelers. An article in Thai Magazine has detailed the significant amount of deaths in Thailand. Foreigners die surprisingly often here. There were 362 UK citizens who met their end in Thailand in 2014, more so even than in France, which attracts almost 20 times as many British visitors. But generally, they lose their lives through traffic accidents, overdoses, and suicides. 
this was very different. Kirstie's murder wasn't the first or the last that the Thai police had blundered or even outright neglected to investigate. A man named Matthew Searle, who has worked with families who have mysteriously lost loved ones in Thailand, says it's very difficult working with the Thai authorities and getting anything done at all is a struggle. If the Thai authorities have an opportunity not to do something, they'll take it. A foreign traveler is not their highest priority, and they don't want the image of foreigners being killed because it's bad for tourism. In March of 2018, Kersey's family, along with Welsh police, formally requested to have Kersey's belongings returned to them. Almost 18 years had passed, and the Thai police still hadn't turned her belongings over to UK officials or authorities or even her family. Sue told ITBX that after so much time had passed, it didn't seem like Kirstie's murderer would ever be found. Quote, it seems in the early stages of the investigation, we hoped and prayed that they would find who did this to Kirstie. Then, as the years have gone by and there have been no further developments, we've lost faith with how the case has been conducted in Thailand. While the foreign office was helpful to start with, they have not been there in recent years. In August of 2020, the 20-year statute of limitation on Kersey's case came to a close, meaning that no one can be prosecuted for her sexual assault and murder. Despite the Jones family's endless efforts and continued assistance from the Welsh police to investigate the case and keep Kersey's name in the forefront of the minds of Thai authorities and the public, justice wouldn't be served for Kersey. In the documentary, Kirstie's father reinforced how they felt that the Thai police ruined their daughter's chance at getting justice, saying, we have our own thoughts about how it's been handled. It was probably shambles from the word go. There was corruption involved with the police. Sue told the BBC that it was incredibly heartbreaking to know that her daughter's killer was free, while Kirstie was gone forever. Sue said to the network, had they been brought to justice, the sadness and emptiness would remain the same, but it may have brought us some closure. I hope we have done her proud in trying to get her justice. Despite everything that happened, and despite the heartbreak that Sue and the rest of Kirstie's loved ones continue to suffer every single day, Sue chooses to remember what Kirstie was passionate about and what made her, her. Telling Mirror, travel made Kirstie streetwise, confident, and ready for the challenges life could throw at her. I'd hate to think her death would stop anyone from fulfilling their dreams of seeing the world. Be sure to check us out on socials. We're on TikTok and Instagram and threads at the Murder Diaries pod. And until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.